0: welcome back to the wealth actually podcast the show that features artists entrepreneurs experts and commentators that will give you the right knowledge planning and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com and now here's your host fraser rice Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Today, we're joined by Ted Seides, and this is an exciting podcast for me because he's not only doing his own podcasting in the capital allocation space, but he's also the second time author of a book around capital allocation. He started his career at the Yale Endowment, and he's also the founder and operator of Protégé Partners. And he's taken his career in an interesting space in terms of building a media company around his podcast and coaching around the asset management space, in addition to his book. He's the author of Capital Advisors, which is a new book from Harriman, and we're happy to have him on. Ted, welcome aboard.
1: Thanks, Fraser. Thanks for having me.
0: It's a treat to have you on. I've been following your podcast for a long time, and it's probably interesting to get interviewed on your own, too. Give us a little bit about your background. You started at the Yale Endowment out of school, and you can't possibly get a better education into the capital allocation space. How did that come to pass? And maybe take us through a little bit about what you took from that and how you pushed that forward to the rest of your career.
1: I was a Yale undergrad. And one of the many economics classes I took was a big lecture that David Swenson taught. And in it, he mentioned that they hire one person a year for this office that he runs. Now, at the time, I probably took that class in 1990. I graduated in 1992. And nobody really knew anything about endowments. And probably nobody knew anything about endowments publicly until he wrote his seminal book in 2000. So it wasn't so obvious that it was a great, job or the way that people could look at it today. But it was an interesting opportunity. I really wasn't planning to stay in New Haven. I was thinking about joining something that had a training program, and to some extent I failed on those two simple criteria. I ended up staying in New Haven for another five years, and there was no training program. It was all through osmosis. I went through the interview process alongside of pretty typical Wall Street interviews and got an offer, and I just really liked the people. And I knew one or two people in the investment business kind of asked them and they thought it would be a good place. And so I started. There wasn't the kind of excitement that someone coming out of Yale might get today working in that office, working for a known star, world-renowned investor. But it was pretty clear sitting there that we were doing things differently than other people. The best early example I got, the first time I ever traveled for work David took me down. He was speaking at Nakubo had an advanced endowment management conference and he was the keynote speaker. So he brought me down to San Antonio with him. And after the conference ended, we flew back and he asked me what I thought. And my first thought to him only six months out of college was, if that was the advanced endowment management conference, I'd hate to see the basic one, which they also had. So- there was an incredible just understanding from an academic context and a practical context of how to invest in this particular style that David had developed on his
0: own. And the world really didn't know about it at that time. And the world has just circled back to him completely. It's not just the endowment space, but the idea of capital allocation, as opposed to security selection, that's part of it, but maybe more of a top down as opposed to a bottom up approach. To allocating assets seems to have just pervaded and changed the way all institutions are looking at things.
1: I think that's right, though it's an interesting question of what top-down and what bottom-up means in that context. So, in an investment portfolio, we think of top-down, you could say as asset allocation, you could say as macro, you could say as theme-driven, whereas most of these portfolios They do have a lens of asset allocation and risk reward and mean variance optimization that gives some guideposts for how each of these asset classes get allocated. But the day to day is bottom up at the manager selection level. And one of the lesser understood success factors of Yale, when David wrote his book in 2000, he got a lot of credit for a more novel approach to asset allocation. But the truth is, he wrote that book right at the end of a bull market. And Yale's success in terms of performance was in spite of that asset allocation. They would have been better off with just a 70, 30 US stocks and bonds. All of these diversifying assets did not help returns in a roaring bull market. And it was really the quality of manager selection that allowed them to do better than others when the traditional asset allocation worked. And then of course, from 2000 to 2002, after he wrote his book. When US stocks fell pretty strongly and Yale continued to do really well, that was sort of the proof of concept that he wrote about in the book for the asset allocation itself.
0: You got a training program by accident in subways at Yale. What did you do with the next step of your career? So at the time, it felt I don't
1: want to say it felt like a dead end job, but you have to understand there were no other endowment offices in the country with junior analysts. There were only maybe a half a dozen universities that even had investment teams. And so I wanted to leave New Haven. I got into Harvard Business School and I went. I I couldn't have been more excited to go. And I thought that I wanted to pick stocks, that that was the area. I had focused more on public equities than other things when I was at Yale. And I spent my summer job working at a value-oriented hedge fund in the summer of 98. And for those who don't remember, that was the summer when Amazon stock went up about 4x Starbucks was a common short because every store they opened, they lost more money. And that stock went up multiple times. And this fund was short all of those names. So I wasn't sure that was the path I wanted to take. When I came out of business school, I worked for a small middle market leverage buyout shop that was one of Yale's managers. And about a year after that, a friend of mine from business school was working at J.H. Whitney, which was a kind of a global alternative asset firm, and called me from Hong Kong and said, what are you doing? And we're growing like crazy. You should come over here. So I did that for a little while. And then that went right into the dot-com bubble. So I hadn't really learned a lot about direct investing. I was only about two years' experience. But things were clearly changing. And at that time, David had written his book. And all of a sudden, I started getting phone calls from people that were interested in talking to me about my old experience. And one of those was from a guy named Dan Stern, who runs a firm called Reservoir Capital, who I had known for a number of years. And he had run the Ziff family office before that. And we talked about setting up something where I could invest in hedge funds. And part of the reason for that was that I knew that hedge funds weren't really anything, that I was used to multi-asset class investing and hedge funds were just a structure more focused on public markets than private, but that you could invest across asset classes. And he had a friend who he also was thinking of partnering with. He put us together and that became Protege Partners, which was a hedge fund fund that invested in early and smaller hedge funds and seeded new hedge funds. And so I went back to manager selection and I did that from 2000, when well, we started in 2001 and I left in 2015.
0: And so you've got this broad set of experiences and contacts within the asset management world. Take us through a little bit about how you've used that and where the development of the podcast came from, and then ultimately how that led to the writing of the book.
1: Well, the podcast came out of having some too much time on my hands when I left my old shop. I was trying to figure out what I would do next. I was doing a few projects. I worked with CDP, the Canadian Pension Fund. I worked with a couple family offices, but nothing that I New certainty was the thing I wanted to dive into next. And when I left Protégé, I had been writing and finished a book that was my first book, which was called So You Want to Start a Hedge Fund. The only thing I didn't like about the book was the title, but I never got away from that. And it was really a series of lessons and case studies that I saw startup hedge funds repeat. So what you saw was that the ecosystem for entrepreneurship in the hedge fund world isn't very robust. Because if somebody starts a new hedge fund and they succeed, they never start another one. And there aren't really serial entrepreneurs. So there aren't that many people that are sitting in seats where they see a lot of startups try and fail and then some succeed. And what I found from sitting in that seat for 14, 15 years was that people made the same lessons over and over again, but they were always new to the first time entrepreneur.
0: One of the things that struck me about the book that I really liked is that I imagine that as an allocator of capital or someone who's doing a lot of manager selection and responsible for identifying talent, mitigating risk, trying to make tough decisions about whether to keep or ditch different managers, the book is well laid out in terms of having what I would imagine would be your thought process in terms of how you analyze both the larger capital allocation decisions that have to be made to fulfill the function of the pool of money, but then how those decisions are implemented. Did you basically take your structure that you developed over the course of a couple of decades of work, or did you have to do anything else to sort of add on to that to get it into book form and and let's call it usable for many people? You know, that book started as a top 10 list.
1: So I had given a speech at a group called the Greenwich Roundtable of sort of top 10 lessons learned from investing in startup hedge funds, and it was to a group of sophisticated allocators. And what surprised me was that most of them had not even thought about seven or eight of the 10, and that was because they just didn't have that experience. And so I thought, there's probably a book in here that writing a book at the time was a bucket list item for me. And so I just started writing down very quickly more of those lessons and each one tied to a specific story of a real fund who demonstrated that lesson, but none of them were one-off. So none of those lessons were only one fund did this and I think it's a lesson. It were things I had seen over and over again and I just picked one fund to write about. So that book was all in my head and it more or less wrote itself with a little bit of backfill research. So the point was I wrote the book and. As it came out, I got asked to do a couple podcasts, and this is back in 2016, the book came out, so it was relatively early. And one of those was with Patrick O'Shaughnessy. It was when we met, I think I was the seventh or eighth guest on his terrific show on Best Like the Best, which was originally going to be a series of interviews with book authors, because he is a voracious reader. And that sort of demystified what a podcast was. was, I said, oh, we're just sitting down and talking in front of a couple microphones, that's kind of cool. And not too long afterwards, I just had the idea one day to spend some of my time running around talking to my old endowment friends just to see what they had been doing. Because in all the years I was focused on hedge funds, it was hard to do both that and have a good ongoing dialogue with people that are investing well beyond just the hedge fund universe. So I just decided to call a couple of people and say, oh, I'm going to try to do a podcast. And that was it. I had no objectives. I was not viewing it as a business at all. And I just started doing these interviews alongside of the other projects I was working on. And it just kept going and I had the time to do it. And at some point in time, about a year and a half ago, the other main projects had dropped away and that's what was left. And it just happened to coincide with when advertisers started calling. And I said, okay, maybe there's a business, a core business in this surrounding the other things I was engaged in.
0: So getting to that business aspect with the podcast, and it's something I'm very interested in having one myself and sort of looking at examples like Joe Rogan, et cetera, and where the monetization can occur. You thought about that in terms of advertising and you've got this wealth of knowledge that I would imagine many upstart managers or even established ones would love, you know, they'd love to pick your brain either from a coaching perspective or a market intelligence perspective, How did you start to organize your thoughts around that from a business perspective and where are you now in comparison to where you started? Well, I would start
1: by saying I referred to myself for a few years as a reluctant entrepreneur. I didn't go at this thinking this would be a business or this would be a commercial enterprise. It didn't make any sense, right? I'm having conversations with people and giving them to people for free. That doesn't seem like a path to riches. And by the way, it's probably a finite audience. This is really just institutional investing. So it was hard to imagine that being a business. And I got asked recently, do I view myself as an investor who happens to have a podcast or a podcaster who talks about investing? And for me, it was always the former. I've spent my whole career in and around investors and investment managers and investing capital, and the podcast is just a way of sharing some of those people and their stories and the lessons. So I thought of the monetization as outside of the podcast, not even with the podcast as a route to it. In fact, most of the advisory relationships I have with both managers and a few allocators are legacy relationships. They're all people I knew from my time at Protégé and in some cases at Yale. So what happened though is that advertisers started calling. And that to me was a tricky one because we're in a very data-driven world for advertising and this medium does not have good data.
0: No kidding. I try to pour through it and it's not satisfying and then you have advice around it that says oh you should have, you know, a robust Instagram account and i'm like oh amongst other things and you're like well how is that going to drive traffic and how do i track it they don't have any good answers and it's all sort of mystical and foggy and that bothers me
1: <laughs> so you know i started thinking about it last year because it was abundantly clear that the audience who listens to my show is very valuable to people in the ecosystem. So any money manager should probably want to be on my show or advertise on the show because if they can get their brand associated with it, ostensibly a large percentage of the allocator community does listen to the show. But not easy to monetize. I thought about it in different ways. I thought about, could I have managers on the show that pay to come on the show? And I just didn't like the feel of that at all. And I tried a little bit playing around because I get almost as many inbounds of managers wanting to be on the show as I did when I was in an allocator seat. And I thought about, well, what if I do interviews with more people than I'll have on the show and I can let them use those recordings for their marketing, but I won't have them on the show. And that was very effective. I did a lot of them last year, but I didn't like it. I felt like those managers all really just wanted to be on the show and I wasn't offering that. And it was effectively the same kind of interview. So I've stopped doing that. I've just... Grown over time. So, going into this year for the first time, I've hired a wonderful guy who comes out of the podcast world, who does understand what data is getting used and how you assess it and how we can advertise more effectively and things like that. And we're just starting to build out those pipes. And what's also happened is the advisory side has continued to be a lot of fun and it kind of keeps my mind engaged in investing. So, there's probably half a dozen managers that I work with. And it To what you said about my first book, I think if there is a knowledge base that I have that is beyond what a lot of the people in the industry do, it's this deep understanding of how the investment process ties into the business. So I don't market for people. I don't really do marketing strategy, but I do understand how they're investing and what the implications of that are for their business and how investors will perceive the different things they do.
0: I was going to say, so one of the things as we get to your second book and the one that's coming out shortly, your framework in terms of sort of defining the job description of what a capital allocator does, I found to be really effective. I think that many people would probably come in with many preconceived notions and you've got a pool of money and you just sort of pick out some people and hopefully most people would talk about an investment policy statement and that that would be a good guiding principle and that those are table stakes into it. But you get into a lot of detail about what the job is beyond that, including the management side of it, from managing people and processes and value systems and ethoses around that capital allocation. You've had so many guests that I think you've been able to pull a lot of lessons from. Maybe let's start out with some of the surprising ones that helped to inform your worldview on that, that maybe you hadn't expected when you'd set up the talk with them ahead of time.
1: Well, there were a few surprises. I'd say one tied into investing and then the others, I'm not sure if they were surprises, but more lessons that really come from interdisciplinary thought leaders. So start on the investing side. When I worked at Yale, the governance structure is ideal. You had an investment committee of sophisticated, knowledgeable people who were there to serve the university, to contribute their knowledge and relationships without getting in the way of the great work that the investment team did. The definition of who was responsible for what was crystal clear and was never crossed and egos stayed out of the room. That almost never happens. But that was my formative experience with investment committee. So I wasn't aware that that almost never happens. And then in my you know 15 years at Protege, I wasn't in a lot of investment committee meetings. But by and large, we had performed very, very well for our clients. And so we weren't the subject of too much scrutiny, more so post-crisis when hedge funds were under scrutiny. So I just wasn't aware of governance challenges as they exist until I started interviewing CIOs on the show and found one after another, they each were expressing these frustrations. So that was a bit of a surprise to me and a real lesson in trying to think through how might you set up governance so that it can be moved towards the effectiveness of what I saw
0: at Yale. You came from the best situation you could be in. And so you're able to sort of look at the managers and say the board structure, the CIO intersection with the board, that's a dynamic that I think managers can guess at, but they aren't in the room to see it. I would equate it when I was in law school, we had a jury trial class. And so the most interesting part of law school to me was you go and present the case and you argued in front of a jury. And a very valuable thing was that they had the jury deliberations taped so you could see what people actually focused on. And it's like, geez, you know, the color of his tie looked nice. I trust him more. And you're going, wait a minute. I, you know, I, I've had to lead this whole argument out and it was very important and all this. They didn't even care one iota. Are there any huge surprises in that investment room or in that discussion between the CIOs and the boards that you think would shock managers and what they're thinking about? I don't know if I'd go as far as to
1: say shock But if there is one important lesson that managers have, just like you were saying, absolutely no connectivity to, it is that the person that they are presenting to or the team that they're presenting to is not necessarily the ultimate decision maker. They might understand an investment office that there's a team of researchers and there's a CIO. And in many situations, if that team decides they want to invest, that investment gets made. But there is a whole separate layer of a decision-making body that's usually a board or an investment committee that has more or less influence in every different situation. And the managers are not ever really privy to what that decision-making unit really is and how it gets influenced. And there are a lot of exogenous factors to just the manager and their strategy that they'll never fully understand. They'll never fully understand what the portfolio looks like and how they fit into the context of the portfolio. They'll never fully understand the historical mistakes that that particular investment body made and what biases they may have for or against that particular manager's strategy. And then they'll never really understand who the people are in the boardroom and what their biases are and what their egos are and how that might affect a decision. And so there's a lot that any manager presenting to an institution is shielded from and really doesn't have privy to. They just get the output of that process.
0: One of the areas that I find interesting, and it's just got to be so difficult for a capital allocator generally, whether it's an endowment or some other pool of money, is this concept of being able to pick highly skilled managers going forward. There's a lot of past performance. You can do background checks on people. You can get an indication of process at that point in time. My personal thought on that, and I'm not a capital allocator, is that in many ways you're trying to diagnose places that have a culture of innovation. I imagine that a methodology or a process or an investment process can get stale or get co-opted by the investment community at large. And so you have to be able to innovate within the framework of your ethos as you are going forward. How did you look at that? Or you know, in short strokes, it's how did you find managers that you thought were going to outperform or at the very least mitigate the risk of picking bad managers?
1: When you don't sit in that seat, You could be anywhere. You could be a money manager. You could be anywhere in the financial services ecosystem. But if you don't sit in that seat, it looks from the outside like this should be impossible. There are so many managers. How could you possibly do it? By the way, if you don't sit in the seat of being a research analyst in a particular sector looking at stocks, you could say, well, how could you possibly know that that company is going to do better than that company or that management team is better than that management team? There's more similarities and differences. So what I would tell you is that when you do sit in the seat, you develop pattern recognition and perspective. And I don't know, I've never counted how many manager meetings I've had, but it's well into the thousands. And one of the missing pieces of the active-passive debate, and I love where this came from. So Fran Canary, who is a 28-year veteran of Vanguard and does a lot of their new product development, was on my show. And he said, what most people miss who are promoting passive management and index fund management, and the active passive debate is yes, on average in a contained market, the whole group of active managers will lose by the amount of fees. But it's really close, and it's basically 50-50, which means half the managers will win. So if you're in the seat of looking at managers for years and years and years and meeting managers years and years and years... What I could tell you from being in that seat is there are lots and lots of managers that are not good, that don't have every basic thing that someone would talk about. They do not have a defined, consistent investment process. They do not have a philosophy of what they're trying to do. They do not have a good team, all kinds of things that are really basic. And what you tend to hear about are only the really good managers or People with explosive performance on the upside and the downside in the news, you say, well, how could you ever predict that? And it's not that you can not predict it. And it's gotten harder because there is more money in passive and therefore the competition in active is more difficult than it's ever been. But I do think that when you sit in one of these seats, it becomes... Not quite a self fulfilling prophecy, but you develop your networks out of the successful managers in your portfolio. If you just spattered and when you started a whole and you know, threw some darts at managers and had a bunch of managers, you might keep the good ones. Maybe it's even just based on performance and you might get rid of the weaker ones. And then you might go to the good ones and say, We like what you do. You seem really good. Who do you talk to? And then they'll tell you and who do you think is smart and who did you go to school with and who trained with you so it's not that you're looking at the whole world of active managers you're trying to find a bull'seye and you're trying to start with the gold and only talk to the gold to figure out you know where else oh we missed oh but if we missed let's just make sure we shot that arrow at a blue or a red we didn't just miss the target
0: so it's in a sense on the theory that success begets success and that the community it helps to self-select for you. You're not having to go out and out of 10,000, go through a typical funnel process. You've already had things pre-screened a little bit. This leads to, I think, an interesting component where you had a stat where you basically said for new managers to get a return phone call from usual pools of capital, let's call it. It's basically along the same lines of getting into Harvard or Yale from a probability standpoint. And if you're not part of the ecosystem, how do you break into it? Or do you not? Or is that just part of the business plan is that you have to bring in credibility into your structure from the outside so that you've got the indicia of outperformance that people will take seriously when they get your phone call? It
1: is very difficult. If you think about it, not from you as the manager who is hoping to break in, but from the allocator who has a large universe of opportunities to choose from they are trying to think about what is their upside with a manager and how do they limit their downside? And everything that we do over the course of our lives creates some signaling effect. So in this day and age when people really question, especially now, the value of in-class education versus online education and can't really self-starters educate themselves the same way online they can. But the value of the places I went to school is as much, if not a lot more, the signaling effect. There's a reason why it's very, very difficult to get into a Yale or a Harvard because you have to be really smart. You have to do all these kinds of things that lots of people would like to do. Doesn't mean that you'll be successful, but it does mean that you've gone through the same path as everybody else and been above them. And so, at least in one narrow thing when you're young in your life. So, what happens is the more that there are lots and lots and lots of money managers, the more that anyone who has a cornucopia of potential ideas has to use filters. And one common filter will be, where did they go to school? Where were they trained? Even if you went to an Ivy League school and worked at Goldman Sachs,
0: there's still a gazillion of those people. It leads to another thought that I've had. The diversity numbers within the asset management industry as a whole are poor and certainly not reflective of society. And that's the sort of vestige of all sorts of previous demographics. But if it's difficult to have the correct signaling ahead of time, what are you seeing that's effective at the capital allocator level to help improve the diversity of managers, whether it's women or minorities, or even just viewpoints, if the numbers don't line up with the signaling process that helps to get quality to the top of the pile faster. I did a mini series last year on
1: diversity, equity, and inclusion to try to understand a little more about this. And I developed a thesis out of what I learned from that and the people I've talked to, which is very different from how the industry is approaching it now. And that thesis starts with the fact that because of where investment management sits in the ecosystem of capitalism, we will always be the tail, not the dog. And so the way people are approaching diversity today is they say, well, I want to go invest with a diverse manager, which is great. There's nothing wrong with that. But they lose sight of the fact that the ecosystem itself is not conducive to a startup particularly in the public markets. But I think it's true, generally speaking. It's really, really hard to start a hedge fund if you are an extremely well-trained white male who worked at Goldman Sachs and worked for a legend in the business. It's very, very hard for that person to start. But there are a few every year that start well, and they tend to spin out of a large, successful branded firm. And they've developed their own personal brand by succeeding at a firm that had a brand. So, the way that the asset management industry needs to evolve to encourage diversity is not by making lots of investments in impact funds, because just by the base rate of what's happening with startups in the industry, most of those funds will fail. And it doesn't matter if they're led by a diverse candidate or a, a white male candidate. What the industry really needs is that the incumbents in a highly concentrated industry, it doesn't matter if it's public equities or hedge funds or private equity. Assets are concentrated with the large managers. Those managers need to start hiring and training diverse candidates so that the stars among those funds who are far more likely to have five or 10 years from now a new fund that succeeds, that those new organizations then have diverse candidates because they were trained by the already branded organization. That's the asset management industry, but the truth is the signaling effect, as we we talked about earlier, starts with schools and then it's where you worked. So it really is from asset management, has to impact corporate America first and it has to impact the education system, which is further along, but not perfect before that. It's a long time before we're gonna see a more balanced population participating in the investment markets professionally.
0: I think I saw an article where David Swenson put the word out to asset managers as an industry and said, look, we are going to be evaluating the steps that you're taking to increase diversity. And there will be pluses and minuses in the way we evaluate you based on those results. Do you see that becoming a trend going forward? Or is that something that David's unique position in the capital allocation world affords him something that maybe other places can't?
1: Oh, it's definitely a trend. And like many things, I think David is spot on in where he's set his lens. What is a little ironic about David sending that message is that by design, Yale tends to invest in niche, single strategy focused managers that are not too large those managers, though he might encourage diversity among their ranks, are not going to be the ones that move the needle for the industry. So he's absolutely spot on in targeting the managers as the place to have the diversity as opposed to just saying he's going to invest in a minority-owned fund. I suspect Yale doesn't invest in anything that Blackstone does, but if Blackstone starts hiring you know, much more diverse candidates five or 10 years from now, you're going to have a lot more stars in the industry with the right branding, and stamp of approval to start their own firms.
0: So this eggs to a concept with the ESG component of investing. By and large, capital allocators have to understand what their liability schedule looks like. They invest their funds to make sure they meet their liabilities and can grow over time. ESG, those are the environmental, social, and governance components. It's become a major trend where there are data linkages to better performance to improved scoring within those criteria. How do you see that going forward? A new uh, FT article came out that said that gender funds didn't necessarily perform all that well. I didn't get into the data too deeply, but it looked like that could be a very weak linkage in and of itself. How do you think about that? A lot of the goals that ESG promulgates are extremely worthy and good ideas, and they may or may not correlate to better performance. How do you see capital allocators dealing with that, on one hand, taking care of their portfolios to make sure they perform correctly, but also providing for a greater good? Well, there's really two lenses to think about that. One is the definitions
1: of ESG itself, because each, each ESG is a little bit different. And the second is what's going to happen over the coming decades. So let's start with the first. Completely different. We actually already talked about S. So S is diversity, it's social issues, and it is of the three, the hardest to measure outcomes, but the easiest for people to think of what is fair and right. I'm not sure you'll ever see diversity increasing as a direct result of investment outcomes because it is not typically a causal enough variable. There are academic studies that show that cognitive diversity is beneficial for good decision-making. That's absolutely true. Just having Cognitively diverse people in a room says nothing about the decision process. It's sort of how the decision process is run. It it is a nice input to have. The environmental side over the last two years clearly has gotten more and more interesting. And I think we're going to see a lot of change in the US. I just had the acting chair of the CFTC, Russ Benham, on the show. And before he was the acting chair, as he was a commissioner of the CFTC, he oversaw a broad constituency research paper on environmental issues in the markets. And it really had to do with how you price carbon. So if companies are compelled to calculate and price their carbon externality as in their disclosures, it will meaningfully change how the capital markets view the cost of capital of those businesses. And that movement is happening. This, when I say broad, you had ConocoPhillips And the nature conservancy side by side, you had left wing politicians and right wing politicians side by side. You had asset managers and asset owners side by side, all in the same group writing this paper together. Pretty clear. And U.S. is behind Europe in that regard, but it's pretty clear the direction that the environmental side will take. And then governance has always been important, and clearly, if a business is governed better, it will have better results. There are some interesting things happening on the governance side. One of the Australian. I'm not sure if it was one of the super funds or sovereign wealth funds divested from China a couple of weeks ago because of governance reasons, because of the way China interacted with their companies. And they thought that was inappropriate and they divested from China entirely. Not something you've read a lot about, but something that could have meaningful impact. So that's the first lens of ESG. They're all trends in the direction. They're mixed together as an acronym, but they're actually three quite different things. What's most interesting about it is demographics. So the Millennials and the subsequent generations care a lot more about broadly defined returns. So the notion that you'd have to sacrifice returns because you limit your opportunity set, which is a factual truth. If you limit your opportunity set, you have a smaller investable universe, you'd have to get lucky to do better. But the notion that things matter more than just or in addition to just bottom line returns is an idea much more strongly held in these next generations. And so over the next 10 or 20 years, I think it will be more seamless in the pricing of assets because the broader, call it constituent capitalism as opposed to just
0: purely capitalism for the owners is already taking hold someone that you interviewed on your show, Greg Fleming at Rockefeller, they have the idea of sort of metric improvers. And it seems like ESG are the factors around that are things that can be assimilated into broader indexes generally. And so the concept may get assimilated into the broader investment thinking of a wider array of both capital allocators and investors generally. Is this something that's a factorable digitized component to the investment thesis? Is this something that Vanguard's going to say, okay, boom, 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 that's going to be part of our index and the active managers in that space may get caught with their hands up going, oh, wait a minute, what happened? (laughs) Well, there's certainly a lot of money in it. So you're going to see products.
1: MSCI already has an ESG ETF. There will be lots and lots of products and what benchmarks get established will matter because then active managers in the space will want to beat those benchmarks. But again, you have E and S and G. And today there is no consistent ranking Of companies that people agree with. Because as you said, you could think that the best ESG strategy are improvers. Somebody else could say, no, 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 the best ESG strategy are the ones that are already excellent at ESG. Those are investment strategies, but there's a lot of qualitative considerations because it's not pristine. What if a company is deeply environmentally friendly, but in doing so doesn't treat their
0: workers well? I use the example of tobacco bonds, let's say. Put in place to right previous wrongs and do other good things, but fueled by tobacco revenues. And so you you've got a big minus sign on one side of it, but lots of pluses on the other. At what point does that nuance get translated into a larger score so that people can meaningfully pick between the two? I think on the environmental side, if you
1: take back a step, what people are trying to do is to participate in the capital markets in such a way that the world can sustain itself for longer. When you get into the micro, there's, oh, is this company doing better? Is that going to be a factor in outperforming? But the institutional allocators don't really look at it that way. They really are taking a step back and saying, what are my exposures to these things? And can I improve that on the margin? You know, In the last couple of years, that's been, let's shed some of our oil exposure. Okay, that's possible. But by the way, the world's not going to stop using oil anytime in the next couple of decades. So a lot of it has to do with, is that already priced in? And what can you do if you earn outsized returns by investing in something that other people haven't? Is that necessarily bad for a goal towards you know, a longer sustaining world? Maybe it is, maybe it's not. People have very different opinions about that.
0: Just to shift gears a little bit, I'm selfishly testing a thesis that I've had that I don't know where it stands, but you've talked to enough managers and have monitored enough of them that maybe you can shed some light on it. Portfolio managers ultimately are human. You can have all sorts of processes around what you're doing, but ultimately there's a trigger that's pulled in a buy or sell decision. And what may have been in place when a portfolio manager's life was maybe more stable may not be in place when they're at a time of deep stress, whether it's a death in the family, a divorce, maybe they're getting married. Maybe that's a different kind of stress. A, have you seen any studies that have shown correlation between stress and returns? And I would imagine it might be not very definitive because some people may do better when they're stressed. It causes them to focus more or they become so distracted they lose the plot. But anecdotally, across thousands of Meetings, what has your experience been in terms of seeing what stress does to the portfolio manager of an asset management firm? I think at the end of the
1: day, none of us really have any robust data to be able to determine it. I have seen some attempts at academic research about things like divorce, and they'll all show that a divorce is bad for your returns, but right after a divorce, you do a lot better. I mean, that's the hypothesis. Even in that example, as an investor, you may not know what strain someone's having in their marriage for years before they decide to get divorced. So like, how do you actually study that? So what I would say is that you do learn a lot about an individual and a money management organization when they're going through times of stress. And usually that stress is difficult periods. You may also learn a lot about how they behave when they go through an unusually strong period of performance. They may not be stressed, but they may change how they're viewing the world and how good they are and you know with markets you're usually not as smart as your results show when you're doing really well and you're usually not as dumb as they show when you're doing really badly so one of the things that you pay attention to particularly on the downside is the potential recursive nature of what happens when an organization's struggling so it starts with the leader how are they handling the stress are they able to keep an even-keeled temperament and stay true to the investment process? Are they able to reassure their team that things will be fine? And through that messaging, what happens to their client base? Because certainly, and some strategies more than others, but if you're in a venture capital or leverage web firm, you never hear about this stuff because the money's locked up for 10 years. But in a public equity fund or in a hedge fund in particular, where by nature of the vehicle itself, they tend to be inherently unstable, you have to pay attention to how are other investors reacting and if other people are redeeming, what's that gonna mean for the team and the stability of the team and the stress level. So there are a lot of things that you have to pay attention to dynamically in one of these investments.
0: We're dealing with human beings and my legal background makes me naturally suspicious of everyone, but this is a maybe an inside baseball question. But do private investigators and other, let's say, extreme forms of due diligence come into play more than maybe we give it credit for?
1: Not more than we give it credit for. You know, I've dabbled with some of that stuff in the past and it's always great to hire you know one of these companies that do these background checks because in order to show their value, they have to try to throw dirt at everything they see. But I don't recall running into any situations with managers we had done work on that something surfaced in one of those background checks that was so deeply unexpected that we you know ran away. And also keep in mind, we were investing in startups. So we were investing in a lot of firms without track records. But even then, they leave breadcrumbs everywhere through their work experience, through their lives. And if you just kind
0: of follow the trail of the breadcrumbs, you'll
1: have a pretty good sense of who somebody is.
0: And if it's coming to you from a trusted source, which is part of that network that you were talking about that helps to surface good ideas, that helps. I always said that
1: the operational due diligence part of an investment process, a big part of what you're trying to achieve in operational due diligence is to make sure that what you are rendering your judgment on about the investment process is actually true. There's a whole lot more to it. There's a lot more of operational infrastructure and things that you got to make sure your money is safe. But part of it is just, okay, let's double check and make sure that this is real. I think there are lots of situations where that's not the case. I did not run into any.
0: So there's a section of your book that I really enjoyed, which is at the end, where you called through a variety of your podcasts and found some really good quotes around a lot of different topics. Uh, one of my favorites, and I'll quote Greg Fleming again, is that optimism is moral courage. And it's something that I hadn't really thought about, but it's very true, or at least in the instances that I've seen. What are the some of the ones that really struck you that resonate? Let me take a step back because when I started writing the book,
1: The first thing I did was spend a couple months with a few terrific people going back and curating quotes from every single episode. And we ended up with something like 880 quotes. And then as I was writing it, we'd use some of those quotes. And what was left with, I think, was like 160 that were just really, really good. And... It wasn't that hard to kind of organize them in different topics, and half of them are investment lessons and half of them are life lessons. So it's very hard for me to pick out one out of 160 and say, oh, this is my favorite. What I did do, though, is create a top 10 list, which were as close to the 10 best quotes, in my opinion, across 150 hours of conversations. And that's right there at the end of the book. And some of them are there just because they're incredibly funny. And a few of them are really pieces of wisdom, but there isn't a single quote in that top 10 that I haven't heard people reiterate back to me at least two dozen times in some shape or form. So I don't have a particular favorite. If there's a section that's the favorite of mine, it's the one on the investment lessons that I call Inconvenient Truths. So it's a pun on Al Gore's environmental movie from years ago, An Inconvenient Truth. It's all fundamental truths about investing that are just too bad that they're true. Almost all of which has to do with some
0: version of, yeah, investing is really hard. So as we wind up here, first of all, thank you very much for being on. we boy, covered a lot of ground and I encourage everyone in the investment world, family office world, asset allocator world to pick up your book. I think it has a lot of great lessons and a, and a strong framework to help you think about the process of asset allocation. What's the best way to find the book and to keep track of what you're doing? In both instances, there's this thing that I've
1: learned about over the last couple of years called the internet. It seems to be getting traction. So the book is on Amazon, audiobook as well. It comes out on March 23rd. And then all of the things I'm doing are wrapped up in a website that's currently capitalallocatorspodcast.com and we are in the process of redoing that website. In the next month or two, it probably will be done, and I think we'll be at capitalallocators.com. Right now, both of those addresses point to the same website, and they will continue to both point to the same website, even though that might move. So, All of the activities I've been doing, the podcast episodes, the writing that I do, we have a premium subscription base, so there's some extra content and my investment thoughts that go into that, some of the advisory work.
0: It's all thrown together on one website. And For listeners, that'll be in the show notes on my website as well, so I'll you'll be able to find Ted there if you can't use Google for (laughs) one reason or another, or if Alexa can't understand what you're saying. Ted, thank you very much for being on. Any final thoughts as we get to the publication of the book?
1: No, thanks, Fraser. I mean, keep doing this. You have a wonderful style of interviewing. I've really enjoyed listening to a bunch of your episodes. And as you know, it's fun to be able to do it. And I'd say keep at it.
0: Terrific. Ted, appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually.